Okay, before we get into it today, another update from the Angle Homeschool Academy. I've got star student Charlotte Angle here. Charlotte, how's it going? Good. It's good. How was this week in school? Um, it was great. What, did you learn anything? Not really. <laughs> Attributable to your horrible teacher, I'm sure. Yep. So what, what's one thing you did that you enjoyed? Um, art. Art? What did you draw? Um, animals. What's your favorite animal? A fox. Awesome. So the governor said this week that we might, um, schools might reopen. How do you feel about that? Great, because I finally would be able to see my friends. Well, I think all of us would like that, provided that it's safe. Charlotte, thanks for stopping by, and um, yeah, get outside. Bye! This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in this week. We have the COVID collab reassembled today and right off the bat, we've got special guest star, University of Montana President Seth Bodner. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, sir. It's great to be here. I don't know about the guest star status, but uh, guest, perhaps I'll, uh, I, I can accept. Well, we'll see. Maybe over the next few minutes, you can live up to the guest star moniker. Uh, I certainly think you can. So, you know, Seth, the university has kind of been at the center of crisis management in, in this situation, um, you know, rapidly mobilizing a transition to remote instruction and so forth and trying to do things to ensure the safety and health of the community, both faculty, staff, students, um, and their families. Um, let's talk about maybe the, the process that you've gone through to think about the university's role in coping with coronavirus over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks, Justin. It has been a uh, a whirlwind of uh, of a couple of months here. It's hard to believe I it's uh, coming up on May, and uh, boy, the last basically two months have just flown by. But but you're right. A, a university, uh, especially in a in a community like Missoula, is so kind of enmeshed in uh, the community in so many different ways. And so when you face a challenge like COVID nineteen. That, that really upends so much of our community. You know, the university has both the challenge to uh, adapt in a coordinated way with the community, but also uh, the obligation, I think, to play an important role in not just responding to, but helping to, uh, to address this challenge as a community. So, you know, we've, as we've proceeded through this, it has really been, uh, you know, important for us, yes, to focus in on how we're operating as a campus, the steps that we're taking, but also what role we're playing in our community here in Missoula and across the state to really help address the immediate and longer term uh, uh, implications of this, uh, of this pandemic. So it's been, a, it's been certainly an interesting couple of months. And I would assume this, this sort of experience has been one that, um, you know, being in it, you can tap into a lot of your previous experiences, be it from the military be it from your corporate experience with GE, um, not to suggest you're in your element, but uh, you know this is a novel situation. But some of the the, the principles of leadership that um, that you draw from, I think, have got to be somewhat familiar right now. I would expect. Yeah, well, you know, there's very little that's familiar right now. Um, but but I think in in you know, there's no playbook for this. But I will say, you know, to your point. 
I, I have drawn upon thinking about all right, how do how do how do leaders in any kind of crisis not just get sucked down into what do I need to think about right now, but w- what do I need to get thinking about or have others thinking about that's going to be really important for us uh, two weeks from now or six months from now or two years from now, and so. Uh, one of the things I've, I've really tried to, uh, to focus on for myself and for our campus over the course of this past month is to make sure that, you know, we, we are, are planning, as I tell folks, really on three horizons. Um, you know, there's this immediate kind of four inches in front of our face set of problems that, that, and, and challenges and opportunities you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and over the first month or so, it was all right, we've got this emerging pandemic. How do we steadily uh, lock down portions of the university to prevent the spread? And, and we can talk a little bit more in detail about some of the things we did there. But, uh, and that, you know, really consumes, I'll call it a, more than 100% of your leadership time, right? It's 120% of your time because you're, you're working at about 150% of your time at least. Um, but, you know, about a month ago, I said, you know, we've got to we've got to really focus on that uh, that immediate term effort. But we've got to get some folks together to to start thinking about what do we need to be starting on in the next couple of weeks to be prepared for six months from now. So uh, we we stood up a, a team, a cross sector mission based team, to focus on I'll call it those those near to medium term efforts. And uh, and over the course of this week, we're actually going to be uh, uh, forming a a university design team to start thinking intentionally about what we want to look like on the other side of this. Uh, and that in some ways can feel overwhelming. Um, but at the same time, critically important for us to be proactive in, uh, in shaping our future and not just letting, uh, letting other events uh, determine it for us. Yeah. You would think a lot of the talk has been about, you know, the various kinds of enrollment shocks that higher education will experience or are predicted to experience. However, at the same time, this seems like the sort of um, crisis facing a society that you know, universities can play a major role in being a part of the solution. I mean, you've used the analogy of water. It's not really an analogy, but the issue of water as a way to illustrate how a university like Mon- University of Montana can really contribute to a big societal issue with a lot of different dimensions. And, and this is similar, how we as a society recover from this. How are you thinking about the role of a public university like the University of Montana in, in leading through the recovery from this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a great question. And, and again, something that we take, uh, we take our, our role as a, as a flagship university uh, very, very seriously. And so as we, we think about each of these planning horizons, um, there is really a, a, an on-campus component to that planning as well as a, an, an operations as well as a community component. And so take this, you know, I'll call it our immediate time horizon, right? Our focus over the past six, six seven weeks has really been, all right, what do we need to do to protect the health and safety of our students in the broader community while enabling our students to continue to learn? And make progress in their academic program. So, from an on-campus standpoint, that mean that meant a massive uh, transformation in how we teach, uh, moving over four thousand course sections to remote delivery. Telling our faculty members that look, uh, you're used to teaching one way. We need you to switch. And we did some prep for that. You know, we we were 
prepping uh, some folks in anticipation of that about three weeks before we actually had to do that. Um, and then we had to say to our students, you know, look, living in a residence hall, it's really tough to, to practice social distancing in a residence hall without adequate testing capacity, without a great ability to do effective contact tracing. Um, and so we dramatically reduced the number of students in the residence halls around, I think around 68 students in residence halls right now. We said to our campus, you have to you know, move to remote work wherever possible. We canceled events, you know, and, and, and really basically curtailed nearly all of the, the, the human interaction and activities that is typical of, uh, of a campus. Mm -hmm. And then from a community standpoint, you know, you think about it from a purely from a science standpoint, uh, and and you look at something like our uh, Center for Translational Medicine, which uh, led by Dr. Jay Evans, and just frankly, world leading uh, expertise in vaccine development and immunotherapy, and uh, and they've been working on an opioid vaccine and 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 doing a lot of other great work, uh, and and in the midst of this really shifted gears and, and frankly just announced a $2.5 million grant from the NIH to expand some of their work uh, on, the, on the vaccine for COVID-19. And in fact, they're working with researchers from Mount Sinai uh, in New York, as well as Boston Children's. And, and the path to a COVID-19 vaccine, believe it or not, is gonna flow right here through uh, the University of Montana. Uh, so, so you've got world leading science there. And then you've got some of our other scientists on a more local level who said, like uh, Regents Professor uh, Rich Bridges, whose lab typically is focused on, uh, on neuroscience and studying Alzheimer's, uh, quickly converted his lab in response to community need for hand sanitizer and uh, started producing hand sanitizer for first responders. Uh, and then to community health issues. So our Center for Popu health, Population Health Research, in fact, just also received uh, an NIH grant, this one for almost $11 million. Uh, led by Curtis, Dr. Curtis Noonan, and, and they've been focused on public health challenges unique to a rural state like Montana. So at the state level, uh, Professor Aaron uh, Landgruth has been working directly with the state uh, epidemiologist, Laura Williamson, on the models for the state. And at the local level, uh, another researcher, Aaron Simmons, is working uh, with the Missoula County Health Department on uh, profiling and modeling of the outbreak here. And I would tell you, but when I talked with state leaders and last week I spent four days in Helena with the governor's task force and with the governor and, and, uh, and I, I spend every day at least once talking to our, our community leaders here. And uh, it, it's enormously, uh, makes me feel enormous pride to be a part of this community when I hear these local and state leaders say thank you to the University of Montana. They have been fantastic. Uh, on, on a health, uh, public health standpoint, a science standpoint, and then on a business standpoint. You know, Justin, you're a faculty member in the College of Business, and mm -hmm. it's been great to see our College of Business step up uh, through the, the, the BEAR program, which is, uh, stands for Business Emergency Assistance and Recovery, really through our Blackstone Launchpad and, and our Accelerate Montana efforts, working uh, with, with Grant and his team at, uh, at MEP to help small businesses in the community uh, navigate resources available, as well as the uh, the Bureau for Business and Economic Research, um, which, which uh, of course, Bryce knows a great deal about uh, already looking at the economic impact. So, so just over the past six weeks, it's been uh, really exciting to see uh, how, our, how our team has not just fulfilled this education and research mission, but really has stepped up to help lead in, uh, in our communities and our states 
response to this uh, this pandemic. I tell you, I've, I've never uh, I've never faced a more challenging situation in my life, um, but I've also never been more proud to be a part of a team uh, like this uh, at the at the University of Montana. It's great to hear that you know an institution um, can move quickly when the moment uh, demands it. And it does feel like our institution has been able to mobilize and really meet the demands of the challenge um, with a lot of grace and a lot of sort of good spirit. So it's been it's great to be it's been great to be a part of that. And it's been great to sort of experience your leadership through that. Um, you want to you, you mentioned a little bit about some of the more future oriented planning, whether it's summer or more beyond that into the fall and next year. Do you have any kind of notions about what life will look like on the other side like what um what the fall looks like or you know what what sort of principles you're sort of thinking about with regard to how we perhaps repackage our core product of of education yeah i mean it's 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 a great question something we've been spending a lot of time on i i mentioned i spent four days in helena last week uh working a bit with some state leaders and the and the governor on thinking about how do we uh, uh, steadily, uh, you know, how do we, how do we increasingly get back to at least a, a some semblance of normalcy while effectively managing, uh, the, the, the spread of, of this pandemic, you know, it, it's, so I, I think we have a, a challenging year ahead of us, uh, as a global society, frankly, uh, and as we think about it from a university standpoint, you know, the key for us is really for our campus, we want to, we want to enable in-person learning. Uh, as, as best we can for our students. It's one of the things that makes the University of Montana special, that, that personal interaction. Uh, but we realize we have to do that in a way that, that minimizes risk to our students, to our faculty members, to our staff, to our community. And so we're working through plans on that right now. And so developing additional uh, measures to, to better understand the prevalence of the virus on our campus, to better uh, manage uh, and, and, and mitigate its spread. So we're looking at ways to, to better, uh, again, enhance our testing protocols on campus, as well as our contact, our ability to do contact tracing through technology, through infrastructure. We're looking at ways we can hold classes uh, while enabling social distancing. And so, you know, this, uh, this fall will certainly not be uh, back to quote unquote normal, but, uh, but we're, we're working to do everything we can over what I'd call the medium term. So, in other words, the next year uh, to adapt and, and, and provide that, that in-person instruction, again, in a, in a, in a risk mitigating way, but uh, to enable our students to continue to learn because uh, that's so important through this. Uh, a lot of our, uh, our students you know, simply don't have access to some of the technology and right. infrastructure. And so you know, existing equity gaps that we've seen uh, already you know, I think we're seeing this uh, across society is, is that this crisis is, is really widening equity gaps that, uh, that already existed. And, and it's really important for us uh, as an institution who, who sees uh, its, its mission really is to, to, to foster inclusive prosperity, uh, to, to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure that all of our students uh, can continue learning and that you know, the, the result of this crisis is not uh, a massive widening in, in equity gaps that, that already exist. So, 
So it, it's a challenge, um, but it's so important over the course of the, the next year to do that. You know, over the longer run, you know, I, I, I shared with our campus uh, this week, I said, you know, it's in some ways with everything we've got going on right now, the, the, the day-to-day uh, work of, of, of managing a public health crisis, the, the challenge of thinking how you adapt a university to operate over the course of the next year to 18 months, uh, in the age of COVID before there's a virus or an effective therapeutic, you know, one might ask, what in the heck are you thinking trying to, trying to plan for the longer term future? And, and, and I guess uh, while I can understand that perspective I and mean, at times feel it myself, I think uh, it's imperative that we, that we work hard to examine now, how do we need to adapt over the longer run? You know, this is a uh, 127 year old institution. Uh, and I, I share with, uh, with our colleagues, you know, that we're the fortunate uh, beneficiaries of the work of previous generations who've guided UM through, through, through challenges in the past. And, and now it's our turn to be thoughtful, to be strategic, to be courageous, uh, to design and think about those, those continued and, and as well as those new characteristics that should embody a flagship university for the future. And and so that's uh, where we formed a university design team that, uh, that will spend the coming months um, looking and thinking about how we can best position the University of Montana for long-term success and impact. You know, at that, in that core mission of, of not just uh, fostering inclusive prosperity, but uh, expanding the reaches of, of knowledge and, and frankly, sustaining our democracy. So it's, it's a big mission we have, and uh, it's one that... Uh, that we have to adapt. And uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the work of that team. Absolutely. Yeah, that aspiration uh, is certainly exciting. And, you know, Bryce and I have had extensive conversations on on, on this podcast about the future of work and, and how higher education um, should be designed to, to meet the needs of the future of work. It's, it's, you mentioned those, those, um, the notions of inequity, whether it's with access to uh, technology or on a bunch of other dimensions. I mean, the demands of the workforce and the demands of the citizenry are going to be different on the other side of this. We could be looking at, you know, people that are underemployed and need to figure out some skills to, to get to full employment. We could be looking at, um, you know, people that need to come back and, and finish up the degree after delay. So plenty of, of different changing needs. And it's exciting to sort of hear about the university taking steps um, to, to really be thoughtful about what it should look like in the future. Um, Seth, before we wrap, I want to make sure that others on the panel have a chance to jump in with questions. Uh, Susan, do you have a question for President Bodner? Uh, no, I have a comment. You have a comment. Well, uh, comments are welcome. Seth, I, Seth, I really, I, I hear you when you talk about sort of the resilience and the longevity of the university, because I feel like our United Way, which is going to be 90 years old next year, this is really going to change us as an organization. I, I feel like, like we're in the same boat, committed to the same values, but figuring out how to navigate that uncertain future. Um, and I also, I just have to say that the Grizz eSports team last Sunday raised $100,000, uh, over $100,000 for United Way through their Twitch live stream. I don't even know what I'm talking about because I'm not an esports <laughs> person. But um, 
I was so impressed by these young people and their community spirit and Professor Michael Casson. So when you talk about public health and, and science and business, um, it's, it's that and it's also students who really evidenced such care and concern for their community. It just blew me away. And as I said, I know nothing about esports, but these student athletes um, have become major supporters of their community. They sure have, Susan. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, we, we talk a lot here at the university of this idea of, a, of the UM family uh, and that this is a university that that really has a has a deep sense of family and 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 really has at its core this idea of of, of inclusivity and and I will tell you one of the I think most heartwarming uh, uh, developments over the course of this past year has been to see this esports team uh, grow. You you start thinking about it in the first year is like oh gosh e gaming video games what are we, what are we doing uh, and then you know as you start to learn more about it obviously gaming and game design has such an impact on so many aspects of our life right now. And so there's so many uh, various applications where the skills these young people are developing can be, uh, can be deployed. But then you also, and these young people are so amazing. You know, the shirts, if you've seen them that they wear, their team shirts say every game, everybody, and it says every game, every body, everyone. So this is a way for people of all abilities, all physical abilities to participate in a competitive activity, and and they have as one of their core values this idea of inclusivity, and and it's interesting. We actually had a as part of our president's lecture series, a uh, uh, an expert from uh, from MIT mm-hmm. on gaming come and speak uh, last fall, and she was so amazed. She said, "I've actually, you know," and she studies this trend of online gaming and 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 the fact that you know Boston's. Uh, the Celtics arena has been filled watching the world championships of, of something of, like more people watch that than the Super Bowl. Absolutely. And she was so struck and so complimentary of the, of the diversity, the, the culture of this esports team here at the university. So, uh, you know, professor Cassins has just done a phenomenal job and I've been so proud of, uh, of our, of our students and the, uh, the way they really built this, this wonderful culture. So thank you for sharing that. And just one more quick comment on that. Um, the way that he, and it was so obvious that this is stressed, talked about the whole the whole person. We're building leaders, we're building character, um, where we are, you know, these are student athletes. It's not just about gamers. And then the, um, just the, the way that uh, we sometimes stereotype people who play video games as disconnected loners. It just blew that stereotype up in a really great way. So, anyway, thank you for thank you for um, fostering that culture. Awesome. Well, before we close, Seth, if you have a couple extra minutes, I think we got a, a time for a question from Bryce. If you have one, Bryce. Sure. Um, so, Seth, as you uh, let's focus on the medium term planning. Um, the the challenge of this particular crisis is that. We started off in an information environment of very, we knew very little, and we still know very little, but we learn more every week. And obviously, for the plans that you guys are creating, um, it's costly to start planning for a future that may or may not uh, come to pass or may get, you know, new information may come that 
shifts it. So what kind of flexibility are you building into the plans? Are there key decision points, uh, key timelines that, you know, kind of make it so that, you know, going to live instruction, we're committed to it or we can't reverse it. So how are you kind of planning or, you know, dealing with, I guess, the uncertainty or the fact that new information is coming so rapidly? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Bryce. And frankly, this uh, team that I pulled together, I said, uh, you know, I'll be perfectly frank with you. Some of the plans that you're going to develop, uh, we're going to throw away because we can't use them. But if you don't develop multiple plans, uh, you won't be ready. And so we are planning for, uh, for various scenarios, depending uh, on the, the continued uh, evolution of the pandemic as we learn more. Uh, as we see uh, see other uh, uh, other developments um, uh, come into play here, so so you're exactly right. The the way that this mission based team is really structured it is looking at multiple scenarios, and looking at how we will accomplish the the core tasks of the university uh, under each of those uh, those scenarios. And so uh, you're right; it's a it's a challenge. But uh, I've shared with the team, you know, we'll we'll need to. And, and we're planning to be back in person uh, for the fall, again, with, with some modifications for sure. But we'll need to, uh, we'll need to make a call, right, uh, mid-summer about, all right, how's this going to work? How's moving? How are dorms going to be set up? What are we going to do? Uh, and and if, if we wait until the time to make the call to start our planning for the, for the various uh, scenarios that we could uh, be operating under, we won't have enough time. So it's, you're right, it is costly in terms of time, but you really don't have much of a, of a choice to, 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 to do that. And so it's, it's, a, it's a challenge and we're learning more, uh, more every day. And, and really the key here, again, and, and as, until we get to a vaccine, until we get to, or an effective therapeutic, um, we, uh, we really have to think about this and our ability to, to, to operate as a university in, in, in terms of uh, our ability to understand the prevalence of, uh, of the virus in our community and on our campus. And uh, when we see it, to be able to, uh, to prevent further spread, right, through, through quarantine and isolation and, and effective contact tracing. So uh, as those things develop, our ability to, to conduct operations um, will uh will will also change but you're right we're planning under multiple scenarios we talk about the education mission but but you think about a grizz football game then what does that look like you think about a concert what what you know what does that look like uh and and so these are big questions obviously that a lot of different campuses and a lot of different a lot of aspects of the global economy are wrestling with as well and and yeah it's a, it's a lot of planning a lot of which will be uh, put on the shelf and not relevant but uh, but really, we really have no choice but to uh, to plan for multiple uh, scenarios. Well, Seth, uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with us on a Friday afternoon. Um, one of the favorite things I have about sort of old school talk radio was the crosstalk between shows. And um, we're transitioning to our next guest, who's a fantastic uh, member of this community, also a UM alum. Charlie Beaton from Big, Big Dipper fame. Um, Charlie, you had your hand up a moment ago. Did you have a question oh. for Seth before he escapes? Yeah, I did. I just had a quick question. I've been talking to some other friends about this, but I was wondering if you felt like there was some enrollment opportunities this fall with the University of Montana 
um, I have a college age daughter who goes to school out of state and there's a lot of her friends um, that go out of state or back east. A lot of their schools are talking about not having classes in the fall. And I just wondering if that was an enrollment opportunity for the university. Yeah, it's, these kids. it's a it's a great question. Um, and it it is both. And, I, and I've shared this with our community leaders. I've been in touch with uh, MCPS uh, superintendent Rob Watson. Um, I think it's both an opportunity and an obligation because there's so much uncertainty right now. Uh, and, and students and parents are thinking hard about, okay, well, maybe my, my plan was to go to school back East, go out of state, or, or maybe that's where I am right now. Um, but especially given the state of the, the pandemic in, in other parts of the country, as well as this idea of being far away from home, you know, it, it's changing a lot of people's thinking. And, and there's a tendency, I think, for some to sit, you know, to sit out a year. Uh, maybe I'll, and you, you hear people say, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a gap year. And frankly, this is about the worst time in the world to take mm-hmm. a gap year because the it, typical internships aren't available. Travel is severely limited. You know, so a lot of these, a lot of these students are thinking, well, okay, with my, if my other plans were on hold, boy, well, what do I do? And, and, and my, my point and to students, and we've been having multiple uh, virtual town halls here for the Missoula community and the broader Montana community. And, 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 and my message to students is you got to keep on learning, okay? Uh, do not put your entire life on hold while we wait for this. So even if your plans are, 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 are slightly uh, modified, you know, don't, don't sit around and wait. Make some progress. Even if you weren't planning to come to UM, uh, take some classes with us. We'll help with that transfer process. Or if you're at another school and you don't, you want to, you may you might want to sit back. We'll take a few classes here. It'll free up some time for you later when uh, when things settle down. When you can do that gap year. So I'd say to your daughter, if she's uh, you know if she's concerned about heading back east, take some classes with us. We'll have some in-person options. We'll have some remote options. Um, she can continue to make progress. Uh, you know, it's in- interesting things about uh, about humans, right? And and I think uh, maybe a good metaphor here is to think about swimming. You know, I was a special forces officer and had to command a, uh, a dive team, an underwater operations team, and, and you know, go through the uh, special operations uh, dive school, which was just miserable. Um, but one of the things you have to do a lot there is, is tread water. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if you all would agree with me, but treading water for five minutes um, is actually yeah. in many ways harder than swimming for five minutes. Um, and, and I think psychologically and, uh, and, and even spiritually, you know, it, it weighs on you to tread water, right. To wait things out. Um, and, and when you can be moving towards something, making some progress, you, uh, you, you know, it's a lot better for you, for you, for you mentally, for you, for you spiritually. And that's, that's in some ways, uh, a message that, that I've shared with, with students and what I would encourage parents as well. Look, you know, I, I realize there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. Maybe your college plans or uh, your, your typical plans are on hold, but get started or, or, or don't just don't just pause your, your education. Continue to make some progress. Do it with us. We will uh, we will help you transition. And, and that's that's obviously important for us from an enrollment standpoint. But but more importantly, I think that's really important for uh, for students and for families as well. This is this this is not a short term situation for our society and uh, and we can't hold our breath 
for the next year to a year and a half until we have a vaccine. And that's, again, optimistic projection. So, so we're trying to do everything we can to, to best serve our students. But, uh, but back to the uh, you know, earlier point, we, uh, we're thinking about our broader community as well. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. Absolutely. Well, Seth, thanks for stopping by, sharing yeah, your- uh, thank you very much. Yeah. And um, yeah, I look forward to our next uh, encounter, hopefully in person at some point. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. We really appreciate it. All right. You all as well. Thank you, Bryce and Susan and Charlie. It's uh, awesome to, to see you virtually. I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Thank you. I gotcha. Bye. Okay. So great to hear from University of Montana President Seth Bodnar. We're joined now by esteemed member of Governor Bullock's Coronavirus Relief Fund Task Force, Charlie Beaton of Big Dipper fame, University of Montana fame, VTO fame. You give us some music <laughs> for the show, the little known fact among listeners uh, that some of Charlie and his, his cohorts music. Charlie, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this, um, I'm sure that Bryce and Susan have questions for you as well. And the context of these questions changes a little bit in, um, you know, when we think about it in, in within the notion of the easing of some of the restrictions the governor put on the, the economy. Um, yeah, what is this task force and what is your job? Sure, well... The task force is basically the federal government is going to be handing over about $1.25 billion to Governor Bullock by supposedly about right now. Um, and so he needs a directive on how to spend this money. He, uh, if this money has to be spent by the end of the year, by December 30th. Um, if it's not all spent, it has to be it has to be paid back. So um, they're looking at probably hopefully spending all of this. Um, and so he put together a task force of about 24 people, a very diverse group of people, a lot of uh, small business owners. Um, there's legislators on it. There's a little bit of everybody on this. So um, it's a it's a really neat group of people. And so we've been meeting on a regular basis. Um, talking about how this money can be spent to help people that are in, you know, a pretty dire situation right now. Yeah. And so this is part of the CARES Act. And how is it different than some of the money that's already been distributed, whether it's through the CARES Act or, or I mean, whether it's through the PPP program or other other dimensions of the legislation? How is this money different and what is it designed to do? Yeah. Well, the money is different in that it cannot replicate anything that the CARES Act is already doing. So it can't be the same as PPP money or anything else that's, that's funneling out of the CARES Act. So that's the question is, what do we do with this money? Um, there's, uh, we've been waiting. And one of the, one of the frustrating things was a, is a week ago, we were supposed to get the federal guidelines um, how, what we can, can and can't do with this money. And we didn't actually get that until yesterday. And, but some of those things uh, I can just kind of read off to you is that, uh, the money needs to be, um, used to cover costs, which are necessary expenditures 
incurred due to the public emergency with respect to COVID-19. Um, they cannot be accounted for in recent budget approved in the recent budget that was approved for the CARES Act. So it's can't, like I just said, it can't replicate what it's already done. And also it has to um, be for things that were, that has occur, incurred between March 1st and December 30th. So, so that kind of helped narrow things down a little bit because there was talk about some different infrastructure things that it could be used for, but really it needs to be emergency funds for things that are happening, that have been happening right now. Sure. And so, you know, how is the, how's the committee functioning? Are you spinning up an application process, trying to distribute that information about who qualifies and who doesn't? And you know, what are kind of the channels of your communications at this point? Sure. Um, Other than this awesome podcast. Yeah, this is helpful. <laughs> you know, there, there's been a, through the website, there's been, um, they've been collecting public comment. And as of yesterday, had over a thousand comments and we have access to read all those. And every, the, it's, the staff is spending a ton of time going over absolutely every comment. And people should feel good that if they made comments that people are reading it and um, hopefully taking some action on it and it's being considered. But um, as a committee, um, we've been, some of us have been going into different groups. I formed a group with uh, four other small business owners that are on the task force. Um, and we're working on some recommendations that we're going to deliver um, to this committee and to the governor, hopefully by Monday morning, um, with respect to helping sm small business owners, especially people that have fallen through the cracks, people that the PPP didn't work for, and um, kind of everybody that's all the business owners that are being affected. You know, what are you hearing on the street here? Charlie, I mean, you run a business in town that's been severely affected by this, and you know, you're you're a high-profile member of the community as far as your relationship to other um, business owners. What's kind of the ground truth of of some of these programs? What are you What are you hearing? Um, I think that I'm hearing is the PPP is not working well for a lot of people in retail and restaurant. I think it was it came out really quickly, and I think the idea was that here's some money and in two months we're back to normal and this will cover you and but the reality now as we know is that we aren't going to be back to normal in eight weeks um restaurants and retail we already we're already seeing it with the with the restrictions lifted where they're talking about restaurants maybe will only be at 50 percent capacity or um, a hair salon still can't be open or um if you own a retail store you know you have limited capacity there's all those things and and those aren't going to be resolved in eight weeks we're going to be dealing with this for a while so um the hard part for a lot of people is that money is you have to use so the ppp money is maybe you guys know is 75 percent of it has to be used for payroll and you need to continue that payroll well if you got ppp money and you have a restaurant um and June rolls around and you can only be at 50% capacity. How are you going to keep your payroll going? So that what happens is you have to pay that money back mm. part of that money. So I think that's, what's um, giving a lot of business owners, a lot of anxiety for my business. I'm it's working. Okay. For it'll work. Okay. For us, because one, we can still be open a little in a limited capacity. And by summertime, we expect, 
be busy just by the nature of the business we're in. So, so it, it'll work for us and it'll work for some businesses, but a lot of people are going to have some trouble with it. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out some crowd management techniques. I mean, we get, we hit an 80 degree day here in town, Charlie, and that line, if their people are six feet apart, is going to be out to Frenchtown, I would assume, which yeah. is a good problem to have, I suppose. Yeah. We're, we're painting some uh, blue squares six feet apart and they might have to, might have to go around the block. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of other cool businesses around the block that they could stomp in on on their weight. Um, so you said this 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 money is designed to sort of meet, uh, meet some of the needs of the people that fell between the cracks. Um, you said you're going to be issuing some recommendations on on Monday. Can you give us a sense of the flavor of the principles that guide those recommendations? Yeah, you know, the first thing we talked about a week ago was um, immediate safety net. So they're kind of like putting these things in buckets. So you're looking at immediate safety net, business stabilization, uh, tourism, tourism and hospitality, and then also state and local government, um, economic assistance, and then also the unforeseen impact. So we're, we're putting everything in buckets and, and that's how things are kind of being organized. So uh, immediate safety net is like, you know, how do we help people that you know, could potentially just go out of business if, if they don't get some help. Um, and they're looking at kind of looking at a little bit of everything. Yeah. And it's a lot because it's, 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 you know, it's food safety, it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, mental health, it's small businesses, it's, it's kind of, it's affecting absolutely everybody right now. Well, Charlie, thank you for being willing to serve on, on that important committee to be a good steward of these funds that um, are going to meet the needs of, of many people in need in our state. And um, yeah, and being a, a champion for food service in, in, this, in this city and beyond. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by the pod and sharing uh, some, of your, some of your wisdom with us. Yeah, my pleasure. And I, I, I feel like, you know, I just want to say that I feel like Montanans are in good hands. Uh, the the people in the governor's office are working really hard to help people, and I I, I think you're you're going to see it. Awesome. Well, as we turn to uh, Bryce and Susan for sort of some of the the breakdown of the, the the week's events, I feel like the most salient thing to talk about are Governor Bullock's recent orders to kind of ease some of the restrictions. Um, Bryce, let's start with you. Last week, we talked a little bit about the problematic framing of reopening. Let's revisit that. You contend that reopening is the wrong vocabulary. It's the wrong sort of conception of, of what we should be thinking about. Um, how, how, should we be cons- how should we be thinking about the, uh, the moves we take to reengage in economic activity here? So uh, the problem with it is it, it, it invokes this idea of a switch, mm. right? That we flip the switch and things kind of go back to normal. And obviously, if you read the governor's order, it says nothing of the sort, right? It's basically, you know, it's, you know, the, the, the shelter in place or stay at home. I don't know what we call it here in Montana. I could, there's, I've gotten confused, but whatever it is that's keeping us at home and closed non-essential businesses, we're relaxing that. And so we're giving people more freedoms. And so I've been thinking about it since we were talking about it before we started. And maybe the better way of thinking about it is not as a switch, but as a dimmer, Mm. right? It's a knob. And basically what's going to happen is we're going to turn that knob up and down 
until we reach you know some sort of equilibrium with a vaccine or a therapeutic um and so you know it's going to be an you know, i think that's for me i think that's the way i'm gonna like to i'm gonna use now is that it's, it's a knob and right now we're we we turned the knob basically as far to the left as we could uh you know shut everything down except for essential services um but now we're going to turn it up a little bit. We're going to turn the lights up a little bit and we're going to see what happens. And hopefully uh, we will figure out how to contain uh, the virus. Uh, and, you know, but if it should reemerge, my guess is that we'll have to turn the dimmer back to the left a little bit. Yeah, I like that framing, Bryce, the dimmer. And as we think about sort of turning it one way or the other, you know, Susan, I'm thinking about an issue that, that you bring to the conversation frequently, and that's about equity. Um, as you start to allow more economic activity, more interaction, more engagement, this is going to affect people differently, um, disadvantaged groups included. How, how are you thinking about a lot of the constituents you work with as we start to reemerge from this and turn that turn that dimmer switch, as Bryce puts it? Yeah, um, I wish I had answers. I, I just would say that vulnerable people who are disadvantaged and suffered inequities before COVID-19 are even more adversely affected mm -hmm. By the pandemic, you know, poor people, people experience home, experiencing homelessness, um, uh, people with disabilities, seniors, uh, there's no end to the list, right? And um, I just think that I like the dimmer switch because I think it's a pretty dim idea to do things too quickly. And um, you and I talked earlier uh, Justin, about is there an opportunity now to um, address systems change um, going forward that, that will address things like social isolation and mental health and lack of access to technology and the fact that we really weren't taking care of people who are experiencing homelessness adequately before the pandemic and now that's just an even worse situation um, and just the economic impact of people who have had trouble filing for unemployment or um, don't haven't even had the technology to be able to do it. So I think there are a lot of people in my sector who are thinking about those things um, and about the expenditures of the $1.25 billion. I think we're in a bit of a, um, I don't know if delicate situation is the right term, but I think that the nonprofit sector, it's important for us to acknowledge the pain and suffering of the small business sector, which provides so much support to our sector. And I don't want us to be seen as, you know, you have to do everything for us um, because uh, I think that would just create enmity and bad feelings. I think we have to acknowledge the pain and suffering of the small business sector while at the same time, um, advocate for our own sector. I think that's kind of a run-on answer for which I apologize. No, that makes sense. And, you know, the 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 fact that nonprofits employ so many people and do so much good for the for the community can't be lost in all of this. Uh, one of the things as you were as you were saying that Susan, you know, the the concept of acceleration is one that this coronavirus crisis has really made salient to me. It's an acceleration 
it's an accelerant of so many different trends in our society. And as we turn the dimmer on, it's almost an accelerant of some forms of inequality, right? The people um, for whom it's safe to go back to work or, or have the, you know, the, the health capacity to maybe take on a little bit more risk. Those are the going to, those are the people that are going to be in a position where they can make money again. And a lot of the people that are in the categories at most risk, whether they're older or they have a pre-existing health condition or they're in a job that, that doesn't allow it, you know, those people who can't get back to work are going to continue to, um, suffer from lack of income and a lack of ability to change that. And so, yeah, it raises big questions about how we design a society, you know, and should we be thinking about different policies as we, as we turn the switch, Bryce, that's a big question policy, but have you thought about that? How turning on that switch is going to exacerbate different forms of inequality? Oh, absolutely. You know, so there was a survey that came out, I don't know, sometime this week. It's called the IGM survey. It's basically, they survey all the grand poobahs of academic economics. How do I get that title? Grand poobah of academics? I don't know. You get a fancy title somewhere. Do I get a jacket or something? Yeah. I mean, for for the most part, you know, usually they do this, they survey these people on all sorts of issues all the time. And, you know, as usual, you see some amount of disagreement, but I think there was a hundred percent agreement that this crisis is exacerbating inequality. Uh, and we're, we already seeing it, uh, but we're going to see it even more significantly as we start to open up. And, you know, I mean, uh, the governor has said to vulnerable people, stay home, uh, continue to stay home. And he's directed employers to grant them special accommodation. But that's one in three of our workers are in the you know over 65 or have one of the various conditions that he's laid out uh and then you say well what if schools don't open well if schools don't open that's another one in four workers now there's some overlap between the two groups but one in four montana workers uh have a child of you know i'm gonna use 13 as the i can you know leave you home alone uh but uh have a child less than age 13 and a hundred percent of the adults in the household are working now you know that's that's from the pre-times. So, you know, obviously there's going to be some of those that are unemployed currently, but, you know, most of the, that 25% are likely to still be employed and it's still going to have to be juggling childcare and work. And, um, you know, how this all plays out, whether you can have an economy function when you have this much of your workforce, that's basically trying to do all things to all people, it's, it's going to be ugly. And yeah, some people might, actually managed to come out ahead uh, through this, but it's going to be a small number. And so the challenge of not being able to get into a room together is we need to start getting in rooms together and with facilitated conversation, working through our issues. Because what what's happening is what we're seeing is, yeah, we're all becoming more aware of the problems. We're seeing some of the underlying inequality in ways that we maybe had been blind to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our desire, you know, it's, oh, we need to help people, but at the same time, scarcity of resources is binding in a way that most of us have probably never experienced, uh, in terms of your own individual resources, because you've lost your job or you've had to take a pay cut, um, your, the government resources, because state and local government, they, 
their tax revenue depends on all the other activity. If you're a business owner, whether or not you're going to be able to survive. So all of, you know, so we're, there's this, there's these two forces. Uh, we need to help people. And yet our ability to help people is limited. And that means that we have to start making choices about who we help with the limited resources available to us. Right. I mean, that's basically what Charlie and his committee are having to do. Mm-hmm. And there's enormous demand, not enough supply and it's an unfortunate reality of our society over the course of my adult life is that we haven't invested enough in the trust and the relationships to be able to have conversations and be able to trust that people are always doing the right thing and to be able to accept if I don't win. Um, because if I don't win, I'm going to go to Twitter and I'm going to be like, these people are awful and they're evil and whatever it is. And that's not going to be good for the social solidarity that we're going to need to try and make it through this. And so it's tough. I am, I am optimistic because everybody's trying to do the right thing, but I am pessimistic because I am concerned about how much sniping and animosity, even in minor little things, like you see out on the trails or you see when somebody isn't engaging in social distancing, the way that you think that social distancing should be engaged in. Um, It's all, it's all, it's a bit concerning and I get, we're all stressed out. It's all very tense, but uh, it's difficult to kind of work through that when you can't bring people together and facilitate kind of that conversation to get to the, we can at least agree on 90% of this and let's go forward with that. Yeah, I mean, one of the themes that's emerged over the course of these conversations is that the the group here, the consensus seems to be more bullish about the prospects for working through some of these issues at the local level than it is at the national level. I mean, I, I think when that announcement from Governor Bullock's office came out Wednesday, I think it was, I mean, it felt to me like my gut reaction was, wow, that that sooner than expected. But at the same time, we've gotten pretty consistent and clear communication from the governor's office. So it felt like, you know, I had some goodwill to trust that the recommendation was the right one and, 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 and trust it. Um, it's unclear, you know, I, I say what you want about the, the national level um, leadership we have, but it, it has not been as consistent. Let's put it that way. Um, and that contributes to some of this sort of sniping, a lot of the sniping, the Bryce that you talk about. Um, Susan, when you think about, working through some of the tough issues that Bryce was laying out there, having these sorts of conversations. I mean, you're, you're a leader that operates in this space a lot. I mean, sort of adjudicating right and wrong between the has and have nots. I mean, that's maybe more pithy than it should be, but yeah. How do you approach those? Like, how would you encourage leaders to navigate right now? I can't really talk because I'm in a corner with the blankets over my head right now after listening to Bryce. Um, (laughs) Come on out. It's a Friday <laughs> afternoon. The sun is out. Dr. Doom, I think is my... <laughs> Dr. Doom. The dismal right. scientist. No. You, pro, you, yeah, uh, the you dismal dubbed scientist. yourself that so, the other week. Yeah. I do agree that that the sort of climate that we're living in now of just tremendous incivility uh, has not stood us in good stead, but it is all the more reason why we should be glad that we're living in Montana. And maybe that is... Um, Having thought about your question for five seconds, I, of course, have the perfect answer. (laughs) But uh, beginning, and it sounds so corny, but I am the Jewish Pollyanna, um, beginning with ourselves and how we relate to people. um, 
concentrating on on you know working focusing outward rather than inward and really i know that sounds so corny but um one person at a time and also calling upon our government to continue to be responsive to the needs of the people, trying not to demonize the opposition. And I think in this, um, and I just had this conversation earlier today on a Montana Nonprofit Association town hall talking about uh, the governor's task force. Uh, my colleague, Liz Moore serves on the same task force that Charlie Beaton serves on. And it, I think we need to focus on 100% of what we can get rather than 100% of what we want and be prepared to think with an institutional ego about what's best for the whole rather than what is best for our sector. And it is not going to be easy, especially for somebody like me who operates from an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. So what sent me into the corner was Bryce's very real wake up call about the scarcity of resources. Um, but I'm just going to keep tilting at that windmill, I, I think, and try to operate from a position of, uh, of, you know, I say I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I'm a possibilist and trying to operate from that space. Otherwise, I really will stay on the corner with the blankets over my head. Well, I think the possibilist position is the best one to have right now. Um, and that seems like a, a, a good sort of motivation to, uh, well, to help get you out of the corner, Susan. Let's transition to our closing thoughts on you know, what we're excited about, what we're thankful for. Charlie, I see you're still on the call, so hopefully you can chime in. We'll, we'll start with you at the end of every week. We close the panel discussion by talking about something we're excited about. What are you excited about? Um, I'm excited about seeing the innovation that's coming out of um, businesses right now. Um, I love seeing people pivot in a different way. And I also love seeing how people are coming together and um, supporting each other more than ever. Um, I see that in just in our neighborhood around Big Dipper and it feels good because we're all in it. We all feel like we're all in this together. So, but I'm, I'm loving seeing how people are um, adjusting to it. And those, the people that do that are the ones that are going to, they're going to be okay. Awesome. Uh, Bryce, you want to take it next? I'll try and help Susan get out from under the blanket. Oh, nice. Uh, the, the key thing to remember is that our, most of our capacity to produce all of the prosperity that existed two months ago has not yet been destroyed. Right. And we have the capacity to, to do things to preserve that capacity so that it can come back to generate our, that, that level of prosperity. Now it's going to be difficult, but we have, speaking of, a, you know, using that possible, it is possible for us to do that. Now, Will we? That's that's what's up in the air. But we have the the option to choose it. And the encouraging thing, the thing that I was originally going to talk about before I had to try and mitigate Doctor Doom there, you know, we're you know we're seeing that creativity, the creativity that made all that prosperity possible. You know, Charlie just mentioned it in the business community. We're seeing it in the scientific community. I mean, every single week, I we learn more about what this disease is how it transmits, 
how many people it kills, who it kills. And with that kind of information, we will be able to get past this much sooner because we're learning and we will use the same creativity to go, okay, if it's that, if it transmits largely indoors with lots of congregated people, yada, 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 well, we can figure out how to mitigate that at least to some degree to help us keep turning that dimmer in the right direction. And that's kind of what we want to be doing. We want to keep trying to move that dimmer to the right and not to the left so that we get more of our lights on, more of our prosperity back, more of our freedom back. And, you know, people are working really hard to make that possible. We just got to keep helping them out. Awesome. Susan, did we turn the dimmer far enough for you to come out of the corner? Yeah, I'm out. I'm back. I'm I'm taking the blanket off. Um, I, let's see, things that have made me happy in the last week. I would say the creativity of both the business and the nonprofit sector, the online courses that, that we've talked about, but I saw some amazing resources today online from our public library and from Families First. Um, things for parents and, and kids, homeschooling. I, I also just saw that uh, Red Ants Pants and White Sulphur Springs, I know that Sarah Calhoun has been on your podcast before, mm-hmm. but they are pivoting from producing women's workwear to making PPE and including masks and hospital gowns. Um, and also just remembering to get outside every day. So those are all things that are helping me. Awesome. Well, I will uh, break the norm and choose something that is decidedly less lofty. Um, I get, well, I should say precious. I don't know, precious little. I get very little time to to watch television, and I I don't really choose to watch television all that often. Um, But there's a piece of programming out right now, The Last Dance on ESPN. It's a 10-part documentary about the last season of the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. I think it was 97, 98. And it's just taken me back to like a, a chilling time from my youth um, where basketball and, and watching the Bulls was just so thrilling. And it's been really fun to revisit that and um, consume a little bit of it. It's been out a week and I've consumed about 40 minutes of the first episode in about eight different doses. So I'm not getting consistent watching, but I'm thankful for what I have. And uh, I encourage folks that um, grew up when I did, a lot of our listeners, I think, did, uh, to check out that content because it's 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 pretty fun. Yeah. It gets better, too. Binge watching is better than binge drinking. So... Um, I think that's I think that's an awesome thing to to do. How are you only forty minutes in? Like, I watched the two hours all in a row and was like, "Wait a second, I don't get to just keep watching." Yeah, you're <laughs> not you're not an employee of the university for- anymore, Bryce. So you are no longer <laughs> getting the influx of emails that I get. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I hope to get more chances, but not when the weather's like this. I'm going to get outside, and I encourage uh, everybody else to do the same. Uh, Bryce, Susan, Charlie, special guest. Thanks for, uh, for joining us and, um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to a new angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from studio 49, a gift from university of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED consolidated electrical distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. 
Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time. <laughs>